Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition. We've got a very special show for you today. On today's show, I'm not the host, but the guest on another podcast. I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Lomax, host of the Steed Talker Podcast. Listen to my conversation with Dr. Alan. Hello, enlightened investors. I'm your host, Dr. Alan, and what a pleasure it is to be with you once again today. And I am excited to discover with you how we can stop chasing deals so we can spend our valuable time creating deals at will. Victor Menashe is a senior partner with Wise Street Capital and host of the Daily Real Estate Espresso Podcast. His firm specializes in new development projects across the United States and Canada. So, Victor, take us into the show by sharing with us a memorable experience from your formative years that helped you to be the person you are today. Alan, great to be here. Uh, If I think back to my formative years, I had some amazing parents. Uh, My mother was the second woman in history to graduate in architecture from Cornell University. So she was blazing a trail. Of course, everyone in her office was was male, and she was the lone female, and she was blazing a trail. She worked on some extraordinary landmark buildings in New York City, in Manhattan. And so as a young boy, I got to tour Manhattan and see those buildings that had my mom's name on the cornerstone. She told me in those days about how her father, my grandfather, was an inventor. I never met him. He died before I was born. But I had a file cabinet full of all of his patents and the prototype of his typewriter. He developed the very first daisy wheel concept before the IBM Selectric typewriter or any of those products had hit the market. And again, patent upon patent upon patent. And so my mother instilled in me at a very early age that I could be anything I wanted. I could invent anything I wanted. And even though I never met my grandfather, that stuck with me. And so that creative uh, fuse was lit at a very early age. Wow, that is that is amazing. And what a mother. I, uh, the obstacles she must have had to overcome and meet. Uh, to become the architect that she was, that's just a fantastic uh, role model. Wow. What a way to get started in life. Well, um, tell us, what are your criteria for investing? It's pretty simple. Uh, we like to invest in markets that are growing. We take the view that real estate is hyperlocal. So, you know, we don't look at averages. We don't look at the, the macro numbers that you would read on the front page of the Wall Street Journal because they're meaningless. They don't apply to your specific situation. They obfuscate the truth, which is really what lies in your own hyperlocal situation. Now we're active in multiple different markets, so you can say how you know how is it, Victor? You know, some dude living up in Ottawa, Canada, you can invest hyperlocally in markets that you're not part of, and it really involves developing that local knowledge in those micro markets. We can't be experts, obviously, in every market, but we have to meet certain criteria. It's got to be a growing market. In our case, you know, we like to develop new product because we think there's a lot of pent-up demand in the marketplace for a product that's differentiated in the marketplace. And we like to stay out of the commodity end of the market, where if you think about the even the term commodity, it's always 
based on competing on the basis of price. And that's the race to the bottom. And so many industries are involved in that race to the bottom, whether it's Walmart, whether it's the airline industry, all of these industries, uh, oil, gas, steel, they're all commodities. And the business goes to the lowest bidder, not the highest bidder. Exactly. So explain to me how this applies to real estate uh, in terms of how are you staying out of the commodity commodity market within real estate? And what do you mean by commodities when you're talking about uh, real estate? You can take an apartment and you can price it on a dollar per square foot basis and say, okay, so the apartments are renting at $2 a square foot. And you can take that commodity view of things. And, you know, you talk to real estate agents, they will take that commodity view as well. On the other hand, you could take an apartment complex and put a half million dollar swimming pool in it which is more than any homeowner would ever put in their own individual home. So maybe they're exiting their four-bedroom house in the suburbs and looking to rent in their early retirement years, maybe have a place that's lock and leave. Now, you could price it on a dollar per square foot basis and pursue that race to the bottom, or you can give someone a pathway to something that they wouldn't have had any other way where they look at it and say, wow, the amenities in this facility are extraordinary. It's I can give up my gym membership. There's an amazing pool. All of these other things that play into the lifestyle that they're seeking, uh, you don't monetize on a dollar per square foot basis. So it's a different sell. Can you give us an example of a property that you have uh, have done that with? Absolutely. We just finished a project in Lake Charles, Louisiana. The the complex is called the Sage Oak of Lake Charles. And this is a boutique assisted living project. It's 80 beds. Now you can look at assisted living and again, on a commodity basis and say, all right, people can pay so much per bed per month. But then you look at what everyone else is doing. You know, all the big box facilities they have a caregiver ratio of 15 to 1 during the day and 30 or 32 to 1 at night. And if you're that person waking up at 2 in the morning and you need to go to the bathroom and you've got a caregiver ratio of 32 to 1, you could be waiting a long time. So the commodity end of the business focuses on numbers. Uh, the, the, the specialty end of the business says, well, what do people really need? So at the foundation of our product offer, it's three simple values better care, better food, and better communication. Now, how does that relate to real estate? Well, if you're going to put better care, meaning a better caregiver ratio, and you're going to still make it affordable, it's not going to be cheap necessarily, but you're going to still make it affordable for that perhaps premium segment in the market, then you, you need to find a way to save somewhere in the budget so you can put more money towards the staffing because staffing is your number one expense in senior housing. So we designed these buildings that are a little bit smaller on a per square foot basis compared with the real estate that goes into the big box facilities. It's more of a boutique offering. We built a campus of 16 bed homes. So there's five homes, each 16 beds and for a total of 80. And these buildings are designed in such a way that the, the rooms are certainly of ample size, but we focus the amenities in the common areas. We designed it in such a way that we can get better leverage. We're all on one level. We don't have elevators, so you're not dividing your staff between floors, things like that. So you get better utilization of all of the resources. And it involves just taking a different perspective 
on how you design the product. And, and when I say design the product, it's not just the building. It's from an end-to-end perspective. It's thinking through that service offering from start to finish. And so you can apply this really to any kind of, uh, of real estate uh, situation, whether it, it is uh, self-storage, mobile home parks, apartments, senior living. Um, and you're really taking, from what I'm gathering here, you're taking an out-of-the-box perspective on any particular property. So I'd like to go into this a little bit more, if we could here. Uh, if you could uh, take us from uh, from day one when you are property prospecting uh, and take us from that prospecting perspective to the visioning perspective, from the visioning perspective to the uh, the decision to actually uh, purchase and from the purchasing to actually developing that property. Maybe before I do that, let's back up a little bit and go to you know what you highlighted as the the outline for today's talk, which is really how to focus more on creating opportunities than chasing opportunities. Because let's face it, today there's more money chasing deals than there are qualified deals Absolutely. in the marketplace. So you get into that auction environment, and you are always going to end up paying more in an auction than if you're the sole bidder. Absolutely. That's absolutely the case. I mean, we know so many people that are paying in multiple offers over asking price in today's environment. I don't want to ever be the winning bidder with 19 other bidders behind me. It's almost guaranteeing that I'm going to pay too much. So I want to get out of that auction environment. And so if there, if you adopt that scarcity mentality and say, well, there's a finite set of deals out there and you're all scrambling over those few breadcrumbs, well, then you're going to be stuck in the auction. But on the other hand, if you have a vision for what that finished product could be that solves a need in the marketplace, then you can create those opportunities at will because there's no competition with anyone else for the idea that's in my own head or your own mind uh, because that's that's you know private. You have that in, in your own mind and that's it. So there isn't that kind of feeding frenzy happening for those off-market, off-the-radar type, type opportunities. And that's what we aim to focus on. When you look at a piece of land, you might see it for what is its as-is value. You look at a building and see it for its as-is value. But we look at it through the lens of what could it be and what does the market need? And is there an opportunity to transform it? So, you know, we started this approach, gosh, in the at the bottom of the of the economic downturn in the wake of two thousand eight. At that time, there was you could buy properties for well below construction costs. So, of course, it didn't make sense to build because you could buy things for less than the cost of construction. But we went through a period of almost five years of very little in the way of new construction in the whole nation. So that told us immediately that it was a lot of pent-up demand for new product. So how could you create new product without necessarily the full-on cost of new products? Still do something that would be price competitive. And that got us literally into rehabbing apartment buildings. And when I say rehabbing, we would literally keep the exterior structure. We would demolish the inside, put a new building on the inside, and have historic facade, but essentially a brand new building on the inside. And we were able to get very strong valuations when we did that. 
you know, we can talk a little bit about that. There's an entire strategy around how to do that. And every city in America has those conditions that really lend themselves very well to redeveloping things that are close to the urban core. Well, take us through uh, a, a living example uh, of, sure. of a project that you've done. So we call this strategy buy on the line, move the line. And so that line is that line that exists in every city in America. Sometimes it's a hard line, meaning it's not a movable boundary, but most of the time that boundary is arbitrary. And on one side of the line, you have that hot gentrified neighborhood with the art galleries and the coffee shops and and you know people walking their pets and all of that and then on the you know go a couple blocks in the other direction and you're in the hood and often there's no real reason why that line exists where it does so if you take property that's just on the wrong side of that line and redevelop it well guess what now that line is on the other side of your property and then you can do it again and again and again now if you just do one or two or if you stray too far from the line it'll probably fail but if you put a little bit of scale behind it, the marketplace takes notice and says, oh, the line has moved. I get it. Now, when you create, you're buying that land typically for a fraction of what would be in the hot neighborhood next door and the completed product, well, there's no comps in the hood. So where are you going to get your valuations? You're going to get it within a small radius, which is from the hot neighborhood next door. So you can often create a tremendous amount of value by buying right, buying at a steep discount to the market because you're buying on the wrong side of the line. And simply by redeveloping, you can get some valuations, maybe not a hundred cents on the appraised value, but you'll get in the mid to high nineties. And now you've got, you've created a tremendous amount of lift without being in that frenzied auction environment. So, and you, I guess you asked for a specific example. I'll give you one. I'll give you a specific address. And we've done a bunch of these, so I could give you a dozen, but we don't have time for that. So the, the idea here is to illustrate that there's a process and a system, not just a one-off fluke. So the address I'll give you is 1228 North 25th Street in Philadelphia. This is a 10-unit apartment building that we built from scratch. It was an assembly of three I'm lots. Sorry. Uh, you said a 10-unit? 10, 10 units, I... yep. Okay. Eight units, uh, two bedrooms, and two units that were one bedroom. Uh, we bought the land. It was th- an assembly of three lots. We bought the land for all three lots for one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars. Wow! And we built these ten units. It's not an A class. I would give it a solid B plus. It was custom designed. It's not a very wide property. It's only thirty-three or thirty-five feet wide. It's not very wide, but it goes fairly deep. And our thesis was: well, maybe if we could get you know, 1200 a month in rent for these apartments, you know, we'd be doing great. And that's what we put in our pro forma. Uh, we built the entire building. This was completed in 2014, I think, if my memory serves me correctly. And we built that building at uh, a hard construction cost of $88 a square foot. Wow. So our entire investment in the project, land, hard cost, soft cost, everything was a million and fifty for this 10-unit apartment building. We got it leased up in about five months. The upper units were renting for $14.50 a month. We were you know, doing very, we were doing above our pro forma in the rents. And so we went to refinance the building and we got a valuation of 1.8 million. The bank refinanced at 1.3. And if you remember, we invested a million and 50. So we got to put a few nickels in our pocket 
Uh, at the end of the refinance process, of course, we paid 100% of the investors their initial capital, and we were left holding a, a building that was producing decent positive cash flow with no cash tied up in it, which is, by the way, the definition of a burr. You can do that on a single-family home. You can do it on a 10-unit building like I just described. You can do it on a 200-unit complex. The math is the same. The math is the same. Well, that is brilliant and to some degree gutsy, but it is it makes it less risky having people out there like you to lead the way. So very interesting, very fascinating uh, concept. Um, you have to know your neighborhood, and you, you've been clear about the fact that you, you know the neighborhoods you're going into, and they're super local, and they are, they're on the fringe of growth neighborhoods, essentially. Yeah, I really, really am fascinated uh, with uh, this concept. Uh, but we are getting close to the end of our show here, so tell us about your role as project leader. So today we're involved in probably close to a dozen projects in multiple different communities. We are building residential subdivisions in multiple cities, taking raw agricultural land, taking it through the entitlement process. We've grown the organization. Uh, our staff meetings today, uh, 9.15 every morning, on average have between eight and nine people in the staff meeting. So we built a reasonable size team. And the focus is on creating these opportunities on a larger scale. It turns out that it's easier to go bigger. If I was to go back in time and redo the early portions of my career as a real estate investor, I would have gone for bigger projects much, much sooner because small projects have one thing that's going against them. They don't generate enough income to afford the team that you need to do this on a sustainable, scalable basis whereas larger projects throw off enough cash that you can actually fund that and have a sustainable business. There's also more money for larger projects, too. It's easier. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it, it, the key is getting the right people in the team. So today, I'm front and center and raising a lot of the capital. I don't do all of it myself. Definitely involved in the, the design concept. We want to develop a product that's going to be a, a winner in the marketplace. So i play a very hands-on role in designing and specifications, although, of course, we hire architects and engineers and specialists for all of those roles, but we're very hands-on with that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, making sure that all of the right people are in the right chairs for the execution of the projects. That's, that's the key, because at the end of the day, a good deal badly managed, of course, is no deal. So it all comes down. The only thing that's a real differentiator, you know, apart from did you design a good product is did you execute absolutely well this has just been terrific uh lots of great information uh thinking outside the box uh is always uh, a challenge to do but almost always can be very very rewarding and you've certainly led the way uh in doing that in some remarkable ways i really like that concept of uh of comparing uh, real estate uh, to the commodity markets and uh, looking outside of those markets uh, to find uh, the specialty uh, markets and interests. Very interesting concept there. Well, Victor, uh, tell us and our listeners how it is that we can get in touch with you and what it is that you have to offer. 
Well, I'm the host of the Real Estate Espresso podcast, a daily show seven days a week. So I'd love to have you as a listener. Uh, Also the author of the book Magnetic Capital. So if access to capital is one of the things that's holding you back, I think the concepts that are in the book Magnetic Capital, born out of my years in raising capital, both in real estate and in my prior career in the tech industry, could unlock the keys to the kingdom for you. So the book is called Magnetic Capital, and you can get access to both at my website, which is at victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. Excellent. Um, Definitely going to pursue that myself. Well, Victor, I have one last question before we close out here, and that is, and this is actually a multiple layered question here. Uh, Share with us one of your most difficult setbacks in life, and it could be related to real estate or maybe not. But how did you come through that time and what lessons were learned from that experience? Wow. I don't know if there's there's so many. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's life, huh? (laughs) It, it, It is. And you learn from the bad times, uh, from the mistakes that were made. I'm going to go with this one. This is from early in my career, having moved into the world of real estate investing. And, and I exited my technology career, held you know senior roles in microprocessor design. So you know I thought I was hot stuff and started working with uh, some folks out of Chicago and ended up selecting the wrong business partners and ended up having a partner that stole from us, you know, to the point where even though he was a partner in the project, he was also the GC and put a mechanics lien on the property to prevent us from selling the property until he got his fictitious uh, invoices paid. And so that was very difficult. It meant that not only was I not going to get paid for those years of hard work, uh, our investors were in jeopardy as well. In the end, we managed to negotiate a settlement. We managed to make sure that all of our investors were made whole. Some of them made some return, not a huge return, but some return. And for that time period, I made zero. And so it really taught me very painfully that it's never, ever, ever about the deal. Uh, Because all of these deals were great deals. But because we had the wrong people, we had no chance of being successful. It always comes down to having the highest quality people in your team. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I remind myself of that every day. And whenever something goes wrong in a project, uh, we even had something go wrong in the past week, it's always traceable down to one thing. We had the wrong people in the wrong chair doing something that was critical for the project. And uh, it's a lesson that I have learned, having to relearn, and I'm sure your listeners can probably resonate with this as well. Well, that had to be extraordinarily disappointing and at a very early point in your career, um, it, it had to discourage you tremendously. So how did you actually come back from that? I had good mentors. Uh, and what they taught me was that even from a low point, the key is not to put your foot on the brake. It's in fact to put your foot on the gas. That's the way to climb out of it. Uh, because putting your foot on the brakes simply, all that does is freeze the status quo. It doesn't get you velocity in the direction you want to go. Your present circumstance doesn't define your destination. All it is is your present circumstance. So get going in the right direction with the right trajectory at the right velocity and put your energies towards that. The rest is all a sunk cost. And I've internalized that. 
we suffer setbacks all the time. We And yet, on the whole, on mass, we are enormously successful. So yeah, that's just life. And uh, I carry that with me every day. Well, very disappointing, but some excellent, uh, excellent lessons, wonderful advice that came from it. Victor, I'm so happy to have met you today and uh, delighted that you were with us. Fascinating, fascinating episode. So thank you so much, Victor. My pleasure. Thanks very much. 